As I read this passage, you may have noticed that it is in some ways similar to the previous one that we have considered. In both the previous passage and this one, those in Christ are commanded by the Apostle to honor Christ in thought, in word, and in deed. The two passages differ in this regard. The previous passage is focused upon the Christian's relationship with other Christians within the church of Christ. Remember the passage, therefore having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another, Paul says. Because we are members of one another, we are to put away falsehood and speak the truth with his neighbor. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need Uh, Furthermore, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Now these truths should certainly be applied to our relationship with unbelievers too. But Paul's point here is that we as Christians and as members of the body of Christ would speak the truth to one another, that we would share with one another, that we would build one another up in Christ and never tear one another down, for we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says elsewhere. Again, uh, the Christian is certainly to speak the truth when engaging with those outside the church, etc., etc. We are to apply these principles even to our dealings with the world, but the apostles' focus here in the previous passage was upon us walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But here in the passage that is before us today, the focus is upon the Christian's relationship to the world. We know how we are to walk in relation to one another, but how are we to walk in relation to the world around us? I wonder if you think in these terms... Uh, your life within the church and your life out in the world. We should learn to think in these terms because we do live in two kingdoms after all, don't we? Uh, We are citizens in, in God's kingdom, in Christ's kingdom, and that kingdom, that eternal kingdom is manifest here in the church. And so we are to live in a particular way with one another, but we also live in the kingdom of this world as well. Simultaneously, we have this dual citizenship, therefore, and we should learn to think in these terms. How are we to live with one another? And also, how are we to relate to the, the world around us? How are we to engage with the, the world in which we live? And in brief, what the apostle here says is that we are to live in the world, but never are we to be of the world. The Christian is to sojourn in the world. We should not seek to isolate ourselves from the world and those who live within it. But never should we be of the world, partnering with those who practice evil or participating in works of darkness. Uh, Brothers and sisters, perhaps you have noticed that Christians do tend to err on one side or the other. Perhaps you have felt this impulse yourself, looking at the world around you and all of the craziness in it and all of the darkness, to just retreat and to run and to hide and to separate yourself from uh, this world and to not engage or to at least engage as little as possible. I do not think that is the calling that we have. Rather, we are to sojourn in this place. But nevertheless, some Christians do fall into this ditch on the other side of the road. In In engaging with the world, they begin to participate in the things of this world. They begin to 
live as the world lives. They practice evil, perhaps. And here, the apostle is wanting to exhort us as children of God to have nothing to do, nothing to do with the darkness itself, to not partner with those who are practicing evil, to not participate in their works. Verses 1 and 2 of our passage function like a hinge. They simultaneously conclude the previous passage and they introduce the next one, which we are considering today. And they do so with these words, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I think this would be a good verse to commit to memory. For one thing, it is very brief. You could memorize it very quickly, I think. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, And also, this would be a good verse to commit to memory because it says it all in a very short space, doesn't it? What does it mean for the Christian to walk worthy in this world? Well, we are to, in brief, be imitators of God as His beloved children. I think the words, as beloved children, are very important. They remind us of what God has done for us by His grace. In love, He has adopted us as His children. And as His beloved children, we are now to mimic the Father. We are to represent the family name that has been bestowed upon us. Please notice that the text does not say, be imitators of God to become beloved children. Or to remain as beloved children. The text does not say that. Instead, the text says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. If you have faith in Christ, you are a beloved child of God. By His grace, you are this. It is not something that you earned, nor is it something that you maintain by your obedience to Him. But as a beloved child of God, it is only fitting that you now be imitators of your Father who is in heaven. This is the fitting response. Having been made a child of God, having now received the family name, having been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. It is only fitting and right that you now go on to be an imitator of God in this world. Now, it is no secret that we all fall short of this, but it is the standard, nonetheless, be imitators of God as beloved children, the text says. Now, clearly the meaning is this. Belonging now to God, we are to imitate God as it pertains to His holiness. I hope you do recognize this, that there are some things about God that we simply cannot imitate. For He alone is God, and everything else is His creation. Because of that distinction between Creator and creation, uh, Creator and creature, we cannot imitate God in the least in regard to His eternality, His omnipotence, His omniscience. We cannot be those things in any sense. Never can the creature imitate those characteristics of God that belong to His divinity, for they are incommunicable. They cannot be transferred to us in any way, for we are creatures, and He the Creator. But God has created us in such a way that we are able to image Him in some respects. God is love, as you know, and we are to love as He loves. God is just, and we are to pursue justice. God is merciful and kind, and we are to reflect His mercy and kindness And this is what the Apostle means when he says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to imitate Him as it pertains to His holiness. And we are to remember that this was God's standard for Israel. God, having redeemed Israel and having entered into a covenantal relationship with them, spoke to them through Moses saying, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
And now God, having redeemed us, adopted us as sons, and entered into a covenantal relationship with us, says, through the apostle, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to live holy lives, for our heavenly Father is holy. It is only fitting. But what specifically does this mean? What does it look like to be imitators of God? Well, this becomes concrete. This becomes easier to understand when we consider that we, as God's people, are to keep God's moral law. He has revealed His law to us. And what is the essence of God's law? How might it be summarized? Well, Jesus, quoting Old Testament scriptures, summarized God's law, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The essence of God's moral law is love. If we are to keep God's law, if we are to be imitators of God as beloved children, then we must love. First, we must love God above all and with all that we are. And secondly, we must love our neighbor as ourself. And this is what it means, brothers and sisters, to walk worthy. This is what it means to be imitators of God as beloved children. It means that we keep God's law and the essence of His law is love. And this is, in fact, what Paul says in verse 2. After commanding us to be imitators of God, he then clarifies and specifies, saying, And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, to imitate God is to walk in love. And notice that it is Christ who is set forth as our example. God is love. We are to imitate Him. But it was Christ who walked in love. Think of that for a moment. God never walked in love. What do I mean by that? Well, um, God does not walk. He does not have a body to walk with. He has not sojourned in this world, except for in this sense, in the Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh. And so here we see that He, Christ, the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh, sojourned, just as we sojourn. And so do you want to know what it looks like for a human to love? Do you want to know what it looks like to be an imitator of God? Then look to Christ. Uh, That is where the apostle directs our attention. Look to Christ, and when we consider His way of life, what do we notice? Well, we notice two things. He lived His whole life, first for the glory of the Father. This is what verse 2 says. That Christ lived as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The whole of his life was an act of worship. The whole of his life was lived to the glory of God. His life was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And secondly, when we consider the life of Christ, we notice that he lived not for himself, but for others. He loved us, verse 2 says, and gave himself up for us. And so here in Christ, we see what it means to walk in love. He loved God with all that he was. He lived always for God's glory. And he loved his neighbor as himself, even to the point of going to the cross to atone for the sins of others. And so in Christ, we see an example of what it means to walk worthy. We see the example, and we are to mimic him. And in mimicking him, we are in fact imitators of God. For he was and is God with us. 
Now, as I have said, verses 1 and 2 function like a hinge, closing out the previous section and introducing the new. And the whole of life, both in our life together as the body and in our life lived out in the world, the Christian is to be an imitator of God and of Christ. And this imitation of God and of Christ is to be lived out in our thoughts, in our words, and also in our deeds. As in the previous passage, Paul provides examples of sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. And then he commands the Christian to avoid them. Again, I do not think that Paul is here giving us an exhaustive list of sins to avoid. Uh, Clearly, he is not doing that. We can go to God's law, wherever it is found in the Scriptures, to find a list of sins to avoid. But I think what he is doing, rather, is giving us examples, uh, setting setting before us examples of, of thoughts, of words, and of deeds to be avoided. And then he trusts that we will, with the Spirit's help, reflect upon these truths and apply them to other sins as well. Verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving. Sexual immorality and all impurity are sinful behaviors that are to be avoided. They are deeds that are to be avoided. Uh, These are general terms that encompass a wide range of sexual sins and immoral living. Paul says that these sins are not even to be named among us as is proper among saints. Not only should we not do them, they should not even be named among us. He Notice, calls the Christians saints because they have been made holy by the blood of Christ. And the point is this. Imitate God in your conduct. Live as the saints that you are. Do what is fitting now that you are in Christ. And I will follow Paul's lead here and refrain from specifically naming the sexually immoral and impure deeds themselves. Notice he does not list them. But he leaves leaves it to us to to know what they are. And I trust that you know what they are. I trust that you know from the scriptures how God calls us to live in this world. And how we are to control the passions and appetites of the flesh so that we do what is pleasing to the Lord. And I trust that you will in due time, parents, teach your children what sexual purity is according to the scriptures. If you don't teach them God's way, the world will certainly teach them theirs. I'm sure you have noticed this. And so, sexual immorality and all impurity, general terms are applied to us. And then Paul says, avoid them. Do not do these deeds. Do not live in this way. Do not conduct yourself in this manner. But covetousness, which is listed here, is a sin of the heart We covet in the mind with our thoughts. We covet within ourselves, in the inner man. Now, to covet is to have a strong desire, to have more and more. To covet is to be discontent with what you have. To covet is to be greedy for gain. The Tenth Commandment forbids covetousness, saying, And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That is Deuteronomy 5, 21. It is the tenth of the Ten Commandments. 
Notice that we are forbidden from coveting, coveting anything that our neighbor has and not just his material possessions. Covetousness is a sin that takes place within the heart and mind. Covetousness in the heart and mind will eventually give birth to the other sins that are forbidden in the second table of the law. People who are consumed with covetousness do eventually bear false witness. They do eventually steal. They do eventually commit adultery and even murder. It is their passion for more and more. It is their passion for gaining an advantage. It is their passion for benefiting themselves, even to the detriment of others, that leads them to commit these other sins. And so, friends, as we pursue holiness... As we seek to be imitators of God and of Christ, it is so very important that we do not forget to keep the mind and the heart pure. For our words and deeds flow from the inner man. The scriptures everywhere teach about this. And so I am encouraging you, brothers and sisters, to listen to what the apostle is here saying. He is addressing in this passage covetousness because his concern is to answer the question, how do we relate to the world as God's people? And I think he is saying to us, well, as we relate to the world, as we look out upon it, do not be worldly. Do not have and be driven by this strong desire to have more and more and more of the world's possessions, but rather put covetousness away. Covetousness, like unforgiveness, which we dealt with last week, is a deadly cancer to the soul. It will consume you. It will drive you to wicked deeds and wicked words. Do not be unforgiving or bitter, Paul exhorted us in the previous passage, that being the sin of the heart that was put forth. And also, do not be covetous, do not be covetous within the heart either. As you, in, as you walk in this world and as you engage with the world, guard yourself because it will consume you. In the place of covetousness, we are to put on thanksgiving, notice. Paul says at the end of this verse, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So in the place of covetousness, put on thanksgiving. Put off and put on is still the pattern. Thanksgiving is the remedy to covetousness. We are to pray always with thanksgiving. And as we give thanks to God, it will, among other things, help to cure the soul of covetousness. And so do you wish to be free from the bondage of lust and of greed? Do you wish to rid yourself of that awful plague of discontentment? Well, do not only put these things off, that you must do, But also daily apply the ointment of thankfulness to your soul. Brothers and sisters, we are to be imitators of God and of Christ in thought and in deed, but also in word. And this is what Paul commands next, saying, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Filthy talk might also be called shameful or obscene talk. Uh, The world listens to you speak, brothers and sisters. Your family listens to you speak. And so does your speech reflect the reality that you are a child of God, that you are a saint? Or is your speech filthy and shameful? Foolish talk is talk that is base and stupid. 
I use that word only because it appears even in Greek lexicons. A foolish talk is talk that is base. It, it's stupid talk. What do we spend our time talking about? Do we spend our time talking about worthless things, base things, foolish things? Or do we spend our words on things that are weighty and of significance? Those who have been redeemed by God, adopted as sons to an eternal inheritance, have meaningful things to talk about. I hope you agree with me on this. The world might not have anything meaningful to talk about, only earthly, base things. But we in Christ have meaningful things to talk about. So let us spend our words talking about things that matter, building one another up in Christ Jesus and giving all glory to God. Crude joking is mentioned here. This is vulgar and unwholesome talk that is often intended to incite laughter. Being funny should not be the supreme objective of our lives. I have found myself saying that to my teenage boys um, as of late. It should not be the supreme objective of our lives to be the funny guy always, you know. I do value humor, believe it or not. Um, I do. If the Lord has blessed you with a sense of humor, then use it to His glory. But we must be careful that we do not give ourselves over to crude joking to vulgar and unwholesome talk, but rather we are to use all of our words to give glory to the name of God. Our words should be used above all to give thanks to God. Again, this is what Paul says, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This is worth reflecting upon, I think. Our words above all else should be used, and most frequently they should be used to Give thanksgiving to God. The word translated as thanksgiving is eucharistia in the Greek. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. I mean, I think you can hear an English word that is common to us in there, at least common to those of us who are in Christ. Very early in the history of the church, the Lord's Supper came to be called the Eucharist. And the meaning is this. It is here at the Supper that we, among other things, give thanks to God. Remember that Christ, He broke the bread and He distributed the cup to His disciples in the upper room as He celebrated that last Passover feast. After He did what? He, he blessed it and He gave thanks to the Father. This should be our practice. We should, with our words, give thanks to God. Um, I will not cite every passage where this word Eucharistia appears. But listen to these. It's a frequent theme in the New Testament. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Uh, we're, we're to pray to God with thanksgiving, Right? Colossians 2, 6-7, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The whole of the Christian life is to be permeated with thanksgiving. We are to abound in it. Colossians 4, 2, continues steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we notice this theme over and over again. The Apostle Paul and others exhort the Christian to, 
to have thanksgiving always on their lips, to have thanksgiving as uh, the, the characteristic of, of their, their life and of their walk. Someone recently asked me, where in the Lord's Prayer are we prompted to give thanks to God? We're studying the Lord's Prayer right now as a congregation on, on the Lord's Day evening. It's been a wonderful study. Some of you have learned to pray in a, in a different way according to that acronym ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Um, I'm teaching you to pray that prayer which Christ taught His disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. It does not follow that pattern exactly. But if you are accustomed to praying according to that acronym ACTS, as, as some have been taught, there's a place where you pause there to give thanks. It's the T in the acronym. But what about in the Lord's Prayer? Where are we prompted by the Lord's Prayer to stop and to give thanks to God? After all, no single petition says, give thanks. And I think the answer is this. Thanksgiving is to permeate all of our prayers. In fact, as I have already said, thanksgiving is to permeate all of our worship. It's to permeate all of our living. And this is why Paul, after talking about thanksgiving, says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I, I think the idea is this. Whatever we are doing, we are to give glory to God in it. We are to praise Him. We are to give Him thanks for every good and perfect gift comes down from His hand. And we are to acknowledge it. Friends, I would encourage you to think about this constant emphasis upon thanksgiving that is put before the believer and to ask yourself the question, am I thankful? Am I using my words regularly to give glory to God, to say thank you to Him before each meal, after each meal, when I rise up in the morning, as I interact with my wife and my children, as I come to church on the Lord's day? Is, am I constantly giving glory to God with my lips? Or am I grumbling? Am I complaining about all that I lack, all that I do not have? I think, brothers and sisters, we need to apply this ointment of thanksgiving to our own souls, lest we grow discontent and covetous in the Christian life. I think it will have a profound impact upon us. So friends, are you striving to imitate God in your life? Are you striving to be like Christ who was and is Emmanuel, that is God with us? Are you walking in love? Are you honoring the Lord in thought, word, and deed? The world is watching, friends. The world is listening to us. And are you living a life of gratitude to the glory of God? And we had better, for it is unfitting for a child of God to live like a child of the evil one. That is the exhortation from the apostle. And this is why Paul offers a stern warning in verse 5. Listen careful to it, carefully to it. For you may be sure of this, he says that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is, is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That is indeed a very stern warning. I think we should allow these words to sink in. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those in the church of, of Ephesus who are professing faith in Christ and he stops here and he says, this is something you may be sure of. Don't miss it. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and he identifies the sin of covetousness with the sin of idolatry. They are the same. 
To be covetous is to be an idolater. It's to worship something in this world rather than God. That one, he says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Perhaps it would be best for us to, first of all, notice what this verse does not say. It does not say that anyone who sins has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. God's children do struggle with sin. The rest of the scriptures make this abundantly clear. I think one of the more direct statements concerning this fact is found in 1 John 1.8, which reads, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. So here, John, writing to Christians, says, Listen, Let's not fool ourselves and let's not call God a liar. We sin. We struggle with sin, even in the Christian life. So the Christian does sin and the Christian is to repent when they do sin. So what does Paul say? He wants us to be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Uh, This is not a description of a child of God who has stumbled into sin And has turned from that sin to walk with Christ once more. This is not a description of one whose walk is more or less worthy. Who has slipped up in some way. Instead this is a reference to the one who is sexually immoral. Who is impure. Who is covetous. This is who they are. This is their constant and regular walk. The one who walks in these things. Has no inheritance In the kingdom of Christ and God. Stated differently, though one might profess faith in Christ and bear the name Christian, if their walk is characterized by sin, then they should not expect to inherit life everlasting in the presence of God. This warning from Paul sounds very much like a warning that Christ himself delivered saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice that these people who call Christ Lord are deeply religious. They are involved in religious activity. They call Christ Lord. They prophesy even in His name. Cast out demons. Do mighty works. And yet Christ on the last day will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of what? Lawlessness. In other words, though these men and women were deeply religious and active within the church, it appears, even. They were living a life of constant sin. They were workers of lawlessness. They are, to use the language of Paul, impure idolaters. They were people who were given over to their passions. Um, They did not have true faith, in other words. Those who profess faith in Christ, who call Him Lord, and they go on to live a lawless life, of disobedience and thought, word, and deed should not expect to be received by the Lord on the last day, but to, ca- to be cast out by Him and, ju- and judged for all eternity. 
So you might be thinking to yourselves, so are we saved by obedience then? Is that what you're saying? Are we saved in the end by our obedience then? And the answer to that question is certainly not. We are saved by the merits of Christ alone, and this salvation is received by faith alone. But here is another truth, and it is the one that is being emphasized in the passage that is before us today, and in this stern warning from the Apostle. Those who are saved by Christ will also live a life characterized by obedience to Him, for they have been changed. They are going to produce fruit, fruit that is fitting with the newness of life that is within them. And so how do we know that we are saved then? How do we rest assured that we truly belong to Christ, given our continual struggle with sin? You continue to struggle with sin, brothers and sisters. I know it, and so do I. How do we know that we are saved? And the answer is twofold. One, we grow in our sense of assurance concerning our salvation. As we continue to fix our eyes upon Christ, crucified and risen, and as we grow in our knowledge of the objective and unshakable truths communicated in the gospel, though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are deserving of His wrath, salvation is found in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And we are to grow in our understanding of this wonderful truth. We We'll grow in our sense of assurance as we fix our minds upon these objective truths, truths that are unchanging and unshakable, rooted in God Himself and in His promises. We must ever grow in our understanding of these truths and believe them sincerely within the heart. As we do, our confidence, our sense of assurance will increase. Two, we grow in our sense of assurance concerning our salvation as we Go on to live in obedience to Christ and walk worthily. Obedient living is an evidence of a regenerated spirit. Obedient living is the fruit of a changed heart. Obedient living is fitting for the one who is truly a child of God. And so subjectively we come to know that we know Christ as we keep His commandments. And this is what John teaches in 1 John 2, 3-6, through 6, saying, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. He goes on saying, Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this We know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. The words of the Apostle John are so helpful here. 1 John 2, 3 through 6 is what I have just read. He is addressing this very issue. How do we know that we really know Christ? It's as we live in obedience. As we live in obedience, we see evidence that the love of God has indeed been perfected within us. This walk of obedience is fitting He who abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked, the Apostle says. And so I suppose the application is twofold as we consider this stern warning from the Apostle. One, if you claim to be in Christ and yet are living a life characterized by sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, if you claim to be in Christ and yet you are living in a state of unrepentant sin, 
then do not be so sure. Instead, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If you are currently living in sin, are you truly saved, we might ask? Well, I think the answer is this. Who knows? And that is the point. God knows, of course. But you do not know. For your way of life is contradicting, even now, your profession of faith. And those around you will not be sure either. For they know the words of Christ, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And may this uncertainty, if you have it, have this effect upon you. May it be used by the Lord to draw you to true faith and to true and sincere repentance. Two, if you claim to be in Christ and have noticed a change, if your life is now characterized by holy living where it was once characterized by impurity, then take comfort in this. See that this is an evidence that you have indeed been made new. Once more, no one is perfect, friends, far from it. But you know the difference, I'm sure, between a life characterized by unrepentant sin and a life devoted to obedience to the Lord. You know the difference. Now, I will admit that it is very difficult to preach on the subject of assurance because of the diversity that exists within Christ's church as it pertains to sensitivity to sin. Are you tracking along with me here? I know that as I deliver this stern warning from the Apostle in Ephesians 5, and as I know as I talk about assurance and how obedience to Christ will produce assurance, it's going to be interpreted in so many different ways. There are some who are self-righteous and self-assured. They think little of their sin and may in fact have erred on the side of false assurance. These think little of their sin and may in fact have um, just continue in a hardness of hearts, thinking to themselves, well, of course God loves me. My sin is really no big deal. It's all about the grace of God, isn't it? Um, but there are others, and in my experience, there are many more of these who judge themselves too harshly. And these fixate upon every sinful thought, word and deed, and are driven to doubt and despair, thinking to themselves, how can I possibly be saved? And I think the remedy is this. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and consider His finished work on the cross and trust in Him. And consider also God's law. We need to do both of these things. We need both law and we need gospel. Law and gospel need to be applied to the soul continuously. The law must slay us so that we see our sin and abandon all hope in self-righteousness. And then the gospel must point us to Christ who is our Savior. Finally, in verses 6 through 14, Paul warns us to have no partnership with those who walk in darkness. And I would like to briefly consider these verses as we move now to a conclusion. Verse 6 Let no one deceive you, the apostle warns, with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These things. Well, well what things is Paul referring to? He is. Referring back to the sins previously mentioned, because of these things, the sins of the world, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Notice that there are sons of God and there are sons of disobedience, these two in the world. 
The wrath of God will be poured out upon the sons of disobedience. We must be sure of this. Anyone who tells you otherwise is seeking to deceive you with empty words. And you're to not let it happen. There is a God in heaven. He is the judge. He will pour out His wrath on all sin at the end of time. And even now His wrath is set upon the sons of disobedience. We see evidence of that as we observe the world around us, don't we? Verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. Notice Paul does not say have nothing to do with them at all. Instead he says do not become partners with them. Do not link arms with them and participate in their ways. Why would you? Why would you closely ally with those upon whom the wrath of God rests? Why would you become partners with them? Paul continues saying, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is is pleasing to the Lord. This is to be your walk now. Notice here that Paul does not say, for at one time you walked in darkness, but rather for at one time you were darkness. There's a difference. But now you are light in the Lord. You are light. You have been changed. And Paul is once again drawing our attention to the transformation that has taken place within us. And because of this transformation, because we were once darkness, but now are light in the Lord, he says, walk as children of light. It is only fitting In other words, live according to what you now are. Live according to what God has made you to be. And what fruit will walking according to the light produce? Walking according to the light will produce things that are good and right and true. Perhaps you have noticed this from your observation of the world. That a godly life does produce things that are good and right and true. This does not mean that the godly will not suffer. Christ suffered. His apostles suffered. And He warned us that we will suffer in this world. But even in the midst of suffering, the fruit of a worthy walk are things that are good and right and true. And the opposite is true of a dark walk. The fruit of sin is division, confusion, chaos, and ultimately death. And so Paul again warns in verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. The works of darkness are called unfruitful not because they do not produce anything. They do produce something. They produce destruction. But they are called unfruitful because what they produce is death and not life. You have probably seen this to be true even in your own experience, that when you live in sin, even if it is for a time, it produces death and not life. The child of God is to take no part in these works of darkness. And I think this should cause us to stop and to think and to ask, have I made a clean break with sin? Or do I still fool around with it somehow? Do I still associate with those who walk in darkness? Again, the scriptures do not say have nothing at all to do with the unbelieving world, but certainly we should not partner with those who live in sin nor participate with them. Instead, the child of God is to expose them. This means that sin is to be rebuked. The law of God is to be applied so that those living in sin know that they are living in sin. And after the law is applied, the gospel is also to be proclaimed. But how can the child of God possibly expose or rebuke sin 
if he or she is in some way participating in the same. First, we must make a clean break with the unfruitful works of darkness. And instead of partnering with those who walk in darkness and participating in their sin, we are to expose the sin itself. And I believe the words of Christ apply here. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you, see, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not see the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Brothers and sisters, uh, this passage is most beautiful. Paul goes on to say, For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul is here quoting not one in particular Old Testament passage, but he is alluding to a whole series of passages in Isaiah the prophet, just as he did earlier in his epistle. And he is exhorting the Christian to to wake up and to live according to the light that is now theirs and that is in them by virtue of the grace of God distributed to us in Christ Jesus. Holy living is the thing that Paul is here calling us to. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy, is the message. Do not be deceived. No one who lives in unrepentant sin will inherit the kingdom of God. For those who have an overly sensitive conscience, I think you know what I mean by that. I pray that these words, these warnings from Paul will not shake you inappropriately. But there are some, I think, perhaps you are in this camp, who need to be shaken by this. If you are persisting in sin... Do not expect to inherit the kingdom of God. For those who have been made holy by the shed blood of Christ will also live holy before Him and before the world. And one of the things that holy living will do is expose the sins of others. God willing, this will lead to their repentance as the law convicts of sin and as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, which announces that in Him we have the forgiveness of sins and the promise of life everlasting. Let's bow together now for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We are encouraged so often by the scriptures. Sometimes we are rebuked by them and we thank you for both. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, myself included in this, that we would reflect deeply upon the scriptures, that we would seek to apply them to our lives. Father, help us as your people to live holy lives before you and to imitate you sincerely. Help us to walk as Christ walked. Father, where there is any deviation from that, I pray that you would remedy it within us. Help us to see the true and better way. Help us to take it. We need your grace. We need your help. We depend upon you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.